0: Warning, this episode of Ask Science Mike contains frank discussions of sexuality, LGBTQ issues, pedophilia, and violence. If that might be triggering or upsetting to you, feel free to pause this episode and come back at another time. Recycling, shaming, and the messiness of the middle. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike.
1: He's got questions, he's got answers
0: Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway he got problems, he won't solve them But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face Science, faith and life Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves a supportive and non judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarr, also known as Science Mike, and I'm a non expert college dropout who just loves curiosity. And we have a lot of fun exploring questions together every week. So, what do you say? Let's get it started. If you're a frequent listener, then you know I took some time off from travel for the rest of the year. I've been having some health stuff, frankly. Uh, But my health is getting better uh, with the rest, so that's a really exciting sign. And that means next year uh, I'll be traveling again. So uh, I want to go ahead and let you know some of that. Uh, January 11th, I'm going to be at Trinity Church in Buffalo, New York. Uh, for their Fresh Voices series Which looks really exciting And uh, if you want to learn more about that You can go to AskScienceMike.com And click on events And as we get back in the flow here I actually have a lot of events in the winter and spring We'll get those up on the website But we wanted to let you know Immediately January 11th Will be Trinity Church in
1: Buffalo, New York <laughs> Hi, Science Mike. I was at the Minneapolis gathering and saw your talk on neurobiology and shaming. And I have had some honest confusion about the way we've been using the word shaming in the last few years. Uh, For example, what is the difference between shaming and condemning? It seems to me that. Shame is used as a tactic by a culture or society to weed out behaviors that they deem as a threat either to the society or to individuals within the society. So is shaming an ineffective tactic in achieving its means or are we merely negotiating which things we think are worth shaming and not shaming? So we seem to... Uh, say, shaming body image and sexual ethics are bad, but we have no problem shaming or condemning things like violence or racism. So is there a difference? Uh, help me understand this. Thanks, Mike.
0: This is such a great question. It's such an important question. I I literally can't imagine a more timely question for the world we live in right now. Um, yeah, what is it with shame and shaming people. When's it okay? When's it not okay? (laughs) Like This is really hard for us to navigate as people because we're learning that shame is bad. And I think we should be learning that. I do actually think shame is bad, and I think that shaming people is wrong almost without qualification. But in order to understand that and what I mean by that, what I just said is not a tweetable insight, for example, because it would be so easy to misinterpret. So let's go a little deeper and let's talk about what shame is. When you experience shame, you experience negative feelings about who you are, about your identity, about your sense of self. So I thought it interesting in your question that you mentioned body image which is part of our self. So if you shame someone for their body, you're telling them to, to feel bad about who they are. You mentioned sexual identity, and if we were to talk about someone's sexual orientation or gender identity and shame that, well, then we would be shaming the person, and that would be shaming. But there's another similar emotion to shame, and that feeling is guilt. And shame and guilt are not the same thing. We feel guilty about things that we do, but not who we are. So when we condemn violence, as you said in your question, or condemn racism, we're condemning violence or acts, and racism is a belief that harms other people. We're condemning, we're creating a sense of guilt. Now here's the thing, both shaming and Guilt, projection, or condemnation are used in human society to control behaviors. What we're learning is that there's a significant cost to shaming, but that there's also a cost to being silent in the face of acts of abuse or exploitation or oppression. And that creates, well, the soil from which your question arises. It is a critical distinction, the difference between shame and guilt when we condemn someone's identity we shame them when we condemn their actions we we say what we will and won't allow as a society so i want to be really clear naming harmful or hurtful behaviors is necessary it's even an indispensable part of being a good member of society I call out harmful behaviors readily and without hesitation. I I don't pause at all. Well, that's not true. I always pause. But after a a healthy moment of self-reflection, I readily call out harmful behaviors. We need to know what we should and should not do. We should not be violent against others. That seems really clear to me, (laughs) right? When I see in the media that there has been a police shooting, I call out that harmful behavior because it seems clear to me, looking at the circumstances and looking at the data, our justice system and our our police system uh, is too ready to use unjustified violence, especially towards people of color, especially towards black people. So I call out those harmful behaviors readily and easily. When I call out harmful belief systems, I'm more careful. Why? Because belief systems, although they produce harmful behaviors, are part of the internal landscape of another person, and if I'm not careful with when I call out a harmful belief system, the person I'm trying to to speak to about the impact of their beliefs will psychologically shut down and withdraw. That's, That's human nature. Those psychological mechanisms are the foundation of things like white fragility. White fragility, of course, is when you talk about race and racism with white people, they tend to shut down. Anytime we raise the notion that something someone is doing or believes is bad or wrong, that begins to affect their identity as a good person, and we all, all of us, all races, all gender identities, all people, have an intrinsic need to see ourselves As good people, that's one of the underpinnings of uh, of human psychology. So I'm more careful calling out harmful beliefs. I still call them out, by the way. You hear me, I'm a white person who calls out white supremacy very often. That's because the belief systems that support white supremacy cause great harm in our world. I condemn behaviors readily, I condemn beliefs readily, but more carefully. I avoid shaming people over their identity as much as possible. I have no interest in shaming people. It can, on a temporary basis, modify behaviors. But people who are shamed eventually have enough shaming, and then this, this outpouring of resentment, this, this reaction to being shamed. I think one of the things we often see is white men moving into the justice movement experiencing from their perspective shame, uh, acquiescing for a period of time and then pushing back against it and then becoming like a Jordan Peterson listener or something. Um, My apologies to the Jordan Peterson listeners I know who are in this audience, but that I'm not saying if you're a Jordan Peterson dynamic that's 100% you, but I am saying I have seen that dynamic with some people where you start as, say, politically and morally conservative. You become more progressive you get confronted with ideas of patriarchy and white supremacy. You feel shamed, you repress it for a while and then it pops up and now you're a you know classical liberal or whatever it is that um that the kids are saying online these days. That's a pattern that I don't see as helpful, and i i I don't think it's right to shame people's identity. It drives me crazy when people talk about Our current president, in the context of obesity and fat shaming, there are plenty of harmful behaviors and beliefs to critique about our current president without getting into his body. But you'll also notice that I don't speak about that a lot. Why? Because in this triage of things for marginalized people, if you're if you're LGBTQ or you're Latinx and in your fear and your frustration, you call our current president a you know fat person or more commonly an orange Cheeto, which that's a little different. The Tanner thing that confuses me. Like, is that identity? Is that behavior? Um, but That's not the time to tell someone, wait, don't shame people, is when a marginalized group is expressing frustration over how they're treated. I don't dictate to marginalized people how they pursue their liberation. So I got to include that as well. So I try to avoid shaming people over their identity. I get frustrated when people do, and I have great patience for marginalized people who are seeking their liberation. I think all those things are, are necessary and can be done simultaneously. Where this gets complex is when we get to matters of identity that intersect harmful belief systems. What do I mean? I mean, I am white. I'm a white person. And whiteness, which is different than being a white person, whiteness is a system of beliefs and systems that advantage white people over other people. I critique white supremacy, and I critique whiteness, and for people who are new to that conversation, that gets interpreted as an attack on their identity. That's one of the reasons I, as a white person, am so careful and, and try to be so patient with white fragility and white feelings in response to discussions of white supremacy, is because now we're it's getting messy, it's getting mixed between condemning a harmful belief system like whiteness versus shaming an identity like I'm a white person. There's nothing wrong with being a white person. There is something wrong with participating in the system of whiteness that produces white supremacy. I'm a man. When we talk about the patriarchy, which is a harmful belief system, for someone who hasn't done their self-work related to justice issues, talking about the patriarchy— They hear, you're saying I'm a bad person because I'm a man. No, I will never say someone's a bad person because they are a man. Never. But I will say that men are often, in fact, almost always conditioned to be participants in the harmful belief system we call the patriarchy. When we talk about ableism, able-bodied people tend to get upset. Wait, you're saying I'm a bad person because I'm not disabled. No, that's not what I'm saying but your identity here is intersecting with a harmful belief system. Homophobia, transphobia, same thing. If you're cisgendered and you're straight, we talk about these things, it might trigger you, right? So this is where it all gets complicated. When a black, queer, trans person online names the problems of white supremacy, patriarchy, ableism, and transphobia They are not shaming the identity of people who identify as white, straight, able-bodied, cisgendered men. But they are calling out harmful belief systems that give those identities extra advantages in society. So to me, this is the difference between shaming and condemning. It is never shaming to speak the truth of your experience. It is shaming when we reduce people to their individual intersections of identity and condemn them because of that. And this is very rare. So what mostly happens is people from more privileged backgrounds, um, we've been inoculated from a lot of social discussion, and our psychology has become dependent on avoiding those discussions. And then because we get very fragile... Marginalized people can grow very frustrated with our fragility. But friends, let me tell you something. I'm as white as it gets. I mean, listen to my voice. Look at my face. I am a white guy. Just through and through. There's no way around it. There's no denying it. There's no avoiding it. Uh, I present as very um, able. I don't present as disabled, although as a person with autism, a person with narcolepsy, I'm becoming aware of how significant my limitations are in in daily living and the amount of support I require to get through the day that other people may not in the same way. But if you just look at me and you just listen to me, my whiteness, my maleness, my straightness, and my ableness are immediately apparent. But do you know something? Here I am, the whitest and the guy of white guys. I have such wonderful, dear, close relationships with people at all different intersections of identity. And do you know what I have found? Because I, for myself, do the work of making the distinction between people calling out harmful behaviors and belief systems versus shaming my identity... Well, gosh, I have found that all kinds of people are patient with me and have time for me and reach out to me and support me. Here I am, a white man, and I have so many close friends of color who are the people who somehow seem to know when I'm having a bad day and send me an encouraging text. And as we develop a relationship over time, when I have questions about how I can best be an anti-racist, when I have questions about how I can best be an intersectional feminist, when I have questions about how I can combat ableism and homophobia and transphobia, there are women of color and men of color and disabled people and queer people who are ready to talk to me and so supportive and so helpful because I don't expect them to do my work for me. And I've demonstrated in the way that I live my life that I don't, ex- I never expect them to do my work for me. And sometimes all I need is, is just a sounding board. By the time I would ask a marginalized friend a question, I can tell you I've read three books on the topic. <laughs> Each and every time. So your question is so timely, because here we are, it's almost 2020. And we're all learning how to live together. We're all learning how to respect each other. We're all learning how to love each other well. And it's really divisive because, well, people are panicked. We like what we had, even if it was bad. (laughs) And sometimes I feel hopeless. And I feel hopeless because of questions like yours. Not that I think it's bad you ask your question, because I share it. What, how, what is the difference between shaming and condemning? How do we drive social change? What is the responsibility of someone who is acting out of ignorance? How do we approach that? How do we deal with the real, legitimate, psychological responses to being critiqued when we or others we love are taking harmful actions or hold harmful beliefs? But I feel, I feel more hopeful lately. And it's precisely because as I've leaned in to inclusive relationships in my personal life and in my work, I start getting glimpses of what it looks like to respect every person's identity, to view our uniqueness as as not just okay, but wonderful as an indispensable part of being a human person. And I get hope that maybe, unlike the media narrative, which shows us all falling apart, well, gosh, maybe one by one, we can start coming together. And we can start building a world together that's fair for everyone. My friend Andre Henry says, it doesn't have to be this way. And in that statement, I find such tremendous hope. And I find such encouragement. And in that hope, I will always condemn harmful behaviors and harmful beliefs while respecting everyone's identity. If you listen to Ask Science Mike, then you already know that KiwiCo is one of my all-time favorite sponsors. You know that my family gets Kiwi crates every month, that we build things together. And in doing so, we learn about science, technology, engineering, art, and math. You know that KiwiCo helps kids learn about these things in ways that are age appropriate and fun and hands on. What you may not know is that KiwiCo makes the perfect gift this holiday. There's something for every kid. On your list. So just remember that KiwiCo is a great option for gifting. These subscriptions help every young explorer, artist, or engineer in your life learn about the things they love. I especially love the fact that KiwiCo can help children of all gender identities feel connected to science, technology, engineering, art, and math. After all, art is for boys and science is for girls too. This holiday, give the gift of hands-on learning for tomorrow's makers. Every month, and as always, the first month of KiwiCo for Science Mike listeners is free. So they've got all kinds of crates for your children, including the new Eureka crate for teenagers and adults. I've tried them, and I Love them. Absolutely love them. So if you're interested in helping your children or children you know get excited about science and learning and art and all those good things, I just need you to go right now to KiwiCo.com slash science where there's an exclusive offer for Ask Science Mike listeners. Again, that's KiwiCo.com.
1: Science.
0: Hi, Mike. I'm a member and leader at a United Methodist Church. After the decision earlier this year, I was asked to help found a Sunday School class that is publicly affirming of LGBTQIA plus people. I found this encouraging. I thought that by helping to foster inclusion, that maybe the church was taking a first step that would be followed by second and third steps. That didn't happen. I've met incredible people, some of whom joined our church, because of our group. And I have a more diverse network of friendships than I've ever had before. I love this aspect of my attendance at this church. However, I am increasingly exhausted by the supposedly moderate stances being publicly declared from both the pulpit and the church itself. This pains me because some of the pastors are my personal friends, and I know them to be extremely inclusive individuals. To be clear, hate is not being taught in any way. However, inclusion is not being clearly declared or taught either. I am told that tension is being held for different viewpoints. My day job is in green technology, So I spend my weeks navigating the moral complexity of capitalism and white supremacist patriarchy baked into the business world. I think and talk about climate change in depth as part of my work each day. By the time I get to Sunday, I have a hard time getting out of bed to face this institution. I often sneak in just from my Sunday school class and leave fast. I've told several folks in the group that I might leave soon. I've been asked not to abandon them. Which resonates with me because I am a cis het white woman, and if people who are more marginalized than I am want to stay, then how can I let them down? I am getting tired. I also have small children to raise. I don't know what the right thing to do is: stand on very clear, rigid principle and go out by myself, or stay to support people who tell me that they find my presence helpful. Any advice? you might have would be very welcome. Love, M. Well, M, I'm so moved. I'm so moved that you care for LGBTQIA plus Christians. It drives me crazy how we tell people they have to choose between their sexual identity and their gender identity and their faith. I'm tired of it. I'm technically still a member of the United Methodist Church. I attended the you United know, Methodist Church for many years that I loved. And um, full disclosure, once the, the, that, that fateful vote came out, uh, I stopped going to any Methodist churches that Sunday. And I have not been to one since. So I understand the desire to take a stand and to move on. Been going to Episcopal churches. It breaks my heart. This moderate position, this messy middle that Methodists are proud of, holding viewpoints in tension doesn't work on matters of life and death for one of those groups. So we can hold in tension differences on theological or political matters that don't affect life and death of people. We can, we can and should do that. But this is a moral issue as clear to me as slavery or the civil rights movement. We can't hold in tension the right to own human beings in the church. It is simply wrong to own human beings. In the same way, it is simply wrong to exclude people based on their sexual identity and gender orientation. I understand that this is a new theology, and I also don't care that it's a new theology. Well, Mike, if we accept LGBTQ people, who else do we have to accept? Everyone. There's no limit here as Christians where we get to decide who gets included. I'm sick of it. And then I'm sick of bad faith arguments. Well, what about pedophiles? You know what? I accept that pedophiles are human beings. I accept that some people have trauma. I've answered a question from a pedophile on this show who, because they were raped as a child, were attracted to children, but they were aware of that and working on it and not acting on it. It's such a bad faith argument to compare orientation to things like pedophilia and murder, because pedophilia and murder are horrible acts against another human being, and same-sex relationships are a consensual celebration of love. It's not the same thing. Get your heads out of the 1500s. I'm tired of it. I am tired of it. I will not stand for one more teenage, gay, lesbian, trans, or intersex teen taking their life because we're holding a viewpoint in tension. Depart from me, I never knew you. So some of you got to experience Science Mike angry for the first time just now. (laughs) I hope that was not overwhelming. I am learning um, that anger isn't wrong. It's not wrong for me to be angry over the treatment of my kin and the kingdom of God. So yeah, my blood just boiled a little bit. All that to say, Em, I understand that you are tired. I am tired too. So here's what you can do. You can just keep loving and affirming these people, whether you stay in the church or not. And you can follow your conviction if you stay in the church church and say, I'll teach this Sunday school class, but I won't go sit in a church service where we hold the tension on people's right to exist. If the pastors are your friends, they will understand. You following your convictions. I think this all comes down to money. Older people who are more likely to tithe are more likely to stand against same sex marriage. Younger people who are less likely to tithe keep the pews full, make the church feel it has a future, but there's not as much money in it. And so people who are inclusive personally but aren't in the pulpit. To me, that comes down to money, and I'm not a good person to give advice here because I've abandoned financial gain over and over and over and over and over for the last five years of my life because I refuse to compromise the dignity of marginalized people so that I can be wealthy or that I can make payments on something. Friends, I will sooner lose the lease on my house then compromise on the right of marginalized people to live lives that are as fulfilling and as legally protected as my own. I can show you the data, friends. As I've spoken out about white supremacy, money has disappeared. Funding has gone away. As I've spoken out about patriarchy, Money has gone away. And as I've spoken out in defense of LGBTQIA plus Christians, funding has gone away. Well, good riddance. <laughs> good riddance. Whatever you do, M, this is my advice. Make sure that no queer person could ever question where you stand. That's it. Make sure they know that your support and your solidarity is absolute and is non negotiable. You may find, like me, that on that stance, because you rest better than you ever have, that you feel like you have more integrity as a parent than you've ever had. And be careful. The unwavering support of straight and cishet people is so uncommon, you may find that people offer you a gratitude and a support that is embarrassing, that is inordinate with the sacrifice you're making. You will make the tiniest sacrifice in LGBTQ people in your life. They may give you more gratitude than you deserve. And that's something you got to work out in therapy. That's something that I'm working out myself. But from one cishet white person to another, Em, I'm proud of you for caring. And I'm proud of you for making a space. People like you give me hope, not only for the future of the church, but for the possibility of a God that loves us.
1: Hey, Mike. uh, Just finished reading Pale Blue Dot on your recommendation by Carl Sagan, so thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was published in 1994, though. I'm curious if you have insights, thoughts, ideas about things that, um, if the book were being written now, uh, what would be different? What new information would be in there? And what are some things that uh, Sagan got uh, wrong, or what are things that he was guessing on that he he was right? Uh, now it's been proven. Thanks so much, man. Uh, I know that's kind of a wide net that I'm casting in that, but you said that you read that book every year, so uh, I figure you'll, you'll have some stuff to immediately grab onto.
0: Okay, you're right. I do read Pale Blue Dot every year. I have a first edition on my shelf that I love. Um, there's few books I've read as often or as frequently as pale blue dot, other than maybe the Bible itself. And i still, am just going to swing and miss on this question (laughs) to answer your question. Well, I would have had to pull pale blue dot off the shelf right now and read it with your question in mind. Uh, the trouble is I read dozens of books in a slow year. So even reading a book once a year, uh, there's still a lot of books interspaced in there. And there's I read strangely. I mean, the mechanics of how I read is strange. I've, I've become aware in the last few years of how different the mechanical process of me reading is than most people. And then what I take away from a book is very different. Here's what I remember about a book that I read. I remember new pieces of information that I haven't heard before, and I remember the style of prose. What I thought about the writing is what I take away from books, fiction and nonfiction. So when I read a fiction book, I remember almost nothing about it immediately unless there was a new idea. Like a they de- had some interesting depiction of a teleporter. Then I remember that. I don't remember characters. I don't remember plot. I don't remember any of that stuff. And in nonfiction books, I remember new information. So when I reread pale blue dot, do you know what I remember? How much I like Carl Sagan's writing. <laughs> because when I read, I for instantly disregard something I already know or things that I disagree with. So when I read a book that I really disagree with, I remember nothing about it other than like, I didn't agree with the author. People would say, what do you disagree with? So I think now you're saying when you all ask me book questions, It's like, how does he remember so much? I have a very specific form of recollection that makes you think I remember more than I do. All that to say, this is such a hard question for me to answer. Um, So what I've done instead is I've thought, like, my general impression of Blue Dot and what we've learned about the world since the late 90s, I can tell you that Carl Sagan's predictions are pretty good. Um, He's a good scientist. I think his predictions on the the pace that we'd explore our solar system may be off. Although he kind of he kind of hedged that bet in his in his in his book, actually kind of uncannily, frankly. Um, you know, it would differ. He, I think, he would talk a lot more about Voyager one and two and how far they've gone. They've both entered interstellar space now. They've left our solar system, and that's really exciting. I think he'd talk a lot more about exoplanets, now that they aren't theoretical, but instead that we have cataloged and, and measured thousands of them in our galaxy, I think you'd probably really geek out that we have to a high degree of confidence that we know the shape of the universe, that it is flat instead of open or closed. Uh, I'm not going to go into that, because if you're not familiar with that concept, that's going to be a 12-minute a answer to go into those things. I think he would talk a lot about the Curiosity mission on Mars and what we're finding out about oxygen and methane and soil composition and how much water ice and how much moisture there is on Mars. I'm sure he'd be captivated by the Cassini probe and its exploration of Saturn. I can't imagine that uh, he wouldn't talk about New Horizons and its flyby encounter with the dwarf planet Pluto. I also think that if Pale Blue Dot were written today, as he talked about geocentrism and caring for the only, the only cradle we have right now, I think Carl Sagan would talk a lot more about climate change and the threat that poses on society. And that's, I don't know, that's all I could come up with. <laughs> it's a strange thing for that to be my favorite book, and what I take away is like, Carl Sagan writes really poetically uh, I don't think his geocentrism stuff would really change at all I don't think the core message of uh, you know, the pale blue dot passage the earth is a mode of dust suspended in a sun spea- sunbeam I think all those insights are every bit as prescient and profound today as they were the day they were first written that's why I, I have such deep deep respect for Carl Sagan who he was as a scientist as a communicator and as a man, um, he's Carl Sagan's a hero of mine, and I, I enjoy that. As so many of my heroes fall away, as I learn more about their uh, how they treated other people, especially women, that so far Carl Sagan has been a durable hero of mine. Um, which I'm sure now some's going to tweet me and, and <laughs> sadly tell me true information that will may take that away from me. But as I say this, Carl Sagan remains a brilliant person who lived his life with integrity, who I deeply admire. And our last question this week came in via email, and it is, uh, well, here it is. Hi, Mike. I've been seeing and hearing stories recently about China not accepting our recycling anymore, On top of that, they say most of the recycling we do as citizens isn't accepted and is just thrown in a landfill anyway. To that end, the reports I've encountered have argued that it's better not to recycle at all than it is to recycle the wrong way. With climate change already wrecking our world, I just can't tell myself to throw my plastic containers into the garbage. I'm flummoxed. How dire is this recycling issue? Thanks for being our guide. What can we do better, Preston? Well, Preston, that's a great question. So, what if you've already done a good thing? You've realized a curiosity, and that honoring that curiosity can make the world a better place. So, the first thing I'd like you to do, Preston, is just like pat yourself on the back, say, like, "Good job, Preston. You care." So many people don't. We get busy, you know life's hard. Then we find out recycling might not work. There's an oversimplification here that I want to address right up top that's dangerous. That's not your fault. It's what you've been told. But you've heard that it's better not to recycle at all than it is to recycle the wrong way. Here's what that means. Throwing a greasy pizza box in your recycling bin is problematic. That doesn't mean not recycling is better than recycling. It means we need to be, we need to have some care and consideration with how we recycle things. So that means for things that were used with food, like um, if you're recycling an aluminum can, let's go ahead and wash that thoroughly before it goes in the recycling bin, and you've just helped make the planet a better place. It means throw away paper items that aren't soiled with food, and that can be recycled. Things that have uh, that have been laminated, for example, can be difficult. So some of this is going to be legwork. To recycle well, you may need to reach out to the organization, governmental or hired organization, that recycles your waste locally, and figure out what their specific guidelines are for recycling. It is true, China is not accepting all our plastics anymore, which is good, because China was accepting all our plastics. And a lot of it was just going into their soil and water. That's not good for anybody. If we're pressured with having to deal with our plastic, we might make less of it. And I think that's important. Okay? Here's the good news. Sorting tech has gotten really quite good. There's, we have a thing now called single stream recycling, which is we're throwing glass. We're throwing metals. We're throwing papers. We're putting it all in the same bin. And guess what? It's not labor intensive to sort that stuff out. That's great. That's wonderful. Single-stream recycling does work. It's better to use it than not use it, unless you do it badly. How do you do it badly? You put plastics in there that are hard or impossible to recycle. If you look at a plastic object that's been manufactured, it's going to have a little stamp on it, like an impression that looks like the recycling triangle. And in the middle of that triangle is a number. So you want to do something great, reach out on the web or on the phone to whatever organization or institution handles your recycling and figure out which numbers are go and which numbers are no-go. Because if they get too much no-go in a load, that just goes to the landfill because it's too expensive to sort. Right? So just make your make your recycle bin really easy. Don't put stuff in there they can't recycle. Same thing with paper products that have been soiled by food grease. That's garbage that's not recyclable. It might be compostable if you're into that too much paper too much paper fiber is gonna mess up your compost compost though. So you know those kind of paper products are a real problem. So what do we do? The biggest problem with recycling is uh, glass that's broken up too finely. you want to put whole, you don't want to like put shattered glass in your recycle bin and single use plastics. So we just make too much stuff that's single use and plastic. So if you cut down, on single-use plastics, eating fresh food helps that a lot, and is also more nutritious. And you limit your overall consumption. So if you so if you buy something on Amazon, it gets shipped to you in an individual box with individual packaging, yikes. If you buy something in a store locally, it came on a pallet, there's less packaging to discard. Do you see what I'm saying? You want to think, how do I limit the amount of packaging that's required for my life to exist? You buy less things, You buy more things locally, you buy more fresh foods, and I understand that all of that has an economic cost. I'm not shaming people of low incomes. First, you do what you have to do to survive, okay? But those things considered, look for ways to limit the uses, especially of single-use plastics. Glass and metals, especially aluminum, are far more easy to recycle than any plastic. Here's the last thing. Watch out for ableism in environmental and recycling movements. I, Mike McCarg, should use a lot less plastic straws than I do. And because my daughter gets all over me, I have a metal straw. I can use a metal straw. People with physical disabilities, they need plastic straws. They don't want them. They need them. So plastic straw bands end up hurting disabled people. That's not okay. So people who don't need plastic straws shouldn't use them, but they should always be readily available. They shouldn't be. You shouldn't have to pay to get one. This is to me, this is a an accessibility issue. But for people who don't need a given plastic product for their health or safety, we should use them as little as possible, and we should support. Um, I don't. I don't know. This gets complicated. Like if we think about straw bans, I love that we're going to. Uh, do you want a straw with that out here in California? I think that's a great notion. Remind people, oh, yeah, there's a cost here. I could even you know see a ban on straws that includes making straws are present for disabled people and available at no cost, right? even if it, even if we produce less straws and now a single straw costs four dollars. that's tough restaurant. <laughs> you're gonna eat the four dollars and you're gonna put it in the price of all of our food. Uh, so that disabled people don't have to pay extra just to eat and drink. That's not okay. Um, I'll have a link from Wired Magazine that talks about uh, the macro issue of China and recycling and policy changes that could happen. Um, And that's a really worthwhile piece reading. I wanted to focus on personal actions and ableism, because every time this comes up, environmental issues come come up, no one not that's not true disabled people but non-disabled people rarely talk about the ableism implications of environmental policy and i think that's important and that's critical so preston thank you for caring and i hope i've given you a few helpful insights that you can put into practice today you've made it through another episode of ask science mike man, I got a little preachy, got more excited on that one than I expected. I should have known with those great questions. Here's what you got to know. Ask Science Mike has never been more popular than it is right now. There's never been more downloads of a given episode than there are today. And there's never been fewer people sending their questions in. How is that happening? I don't know. So if if you're curious about something, let me celebrate that with you. Go to AskScienceMike.com. You can type out a question. Or you can send me a voicemail. You can hear yourself on the show, or I'll read your question. You hear it every week. But just know, I do this because I like your curiosity. I don't know what to talk about unless you ask me. And I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon for picking out the questions every week. Thank you so much for not only supporting the show, but picking what goes on the air. And if you want to join my patrons, you can go to AskScienceMike.com. There's a Join Me on Patreon button. You can click that and learn all about what it's like to support this show on Patreon. You can can do so for as little as a dollar a month. It makes a huge difference in my life. It lets me make sure the people who work on the show get paid. All those wonderful things. So if you're not a patron, please consider it. I'd like to thank Andrew Galucki, as always, for doing pre-production. Greg Nordine for production and sound design. I would like to thank Caitlin Hermstad for being the executive producer of Ask Science Mike and holding the whole thing together. And I'd like to thank you, yes, you, for listening for 200 episodes and beyond. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I can't wait to talk with you next week.